One of the reasons we read the scripture the way that we do is because we believe it's the very words of God. We think it's that important that we would hear from God, that we would spend time in his word, hearing what he said to his creation. But one of the things that I, I, I keep remembering this quote, Charles Spurgeon was this preacher in England, and he spoke to the masses before they had amplified microphones and speakers. And one of the things that he said in one of his quotes towards the end of his life was, if I could do it all over again, I would have preached less and I would have prayed more. And I don't know if I'm distracted, that's probably what I am, but I just feel this, this need to just pray for us in the service, because alarms are going to go off. People are going to drop stuff. There are a lot of people on this campus doing other things that are going to make noises, and there's going to be a distraction that makes it so we, yes, so we can't hear the Word of God. But it's not just the distraction of alarms or children or adults or whatever. You know what it is? Sometimes we just can't hear because we're spiritually deaf. And so I just want to pray against that. I just want to pray that God would open our ears. And for some of you, let me just be real, you're not going to get it. Because there was a time I definitely didn't get it. There was a time that I probably still won't get it. But I think that if we pray, that maybe, just maybe, God will expose some things to us that maybe we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Because we don't pray to change God's mind, we pray to get in line with his will. And so would you close your eyes, would you bow your heads, if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, just humor me. And I'm just going to, I'm going to talk to God. (sighs) Father, I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'm distracted or I'm caring way too much about how people hear things or I'm focusing more on me than I am on you. But God, I pray that you would strip me of that, that your word would be the thing that we gather around and that you would speak into our hearts and you would change us and you would help us understand that we get to worship the God of the word, not just the words of God. And so, Lord, open our ears, open our eyes, open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most difficult things about Christianity, I think, or just religion, if you consider Christianity a religion, which I'll let you consider that for now, but I'm going to tell you how that's not the case later. When you think of spiritual things, you think of people that have a relationship with a deity, a higher power, God, however they see this, this force of nature, if you will. One of the hardest things for people that are Catholics, Christians, Mormons, Jews, like Twilight, like whatever, is why does what we do matter? And this is the small tension, if you will, that actually allows some people to be in relationship with God based on how they see works versus not having a true relationship with the God of the Bible based on how they see works. 
And I don't really know that I fully grasp it or understand because there are a lot of, I believe we are totally in relationship with God, not based on anything we've done. It's all because of God's grace, giving us what we do not deserve in his son, Jesus, living the life we couldn't die and the death we deserve to die and physically rising from the dead. I get that. I didn't do anything to earn that. I didn't bring anything to the table, but what I do matters in the kingdom of God. So there's got to be this tension, there's got to be this pendulum that is swinging, and for some, they think, well, I don't have to do anything. What is the point, if you are saved, not by your own effort and merit, to do anything? Why do, if it's already been done for you? But the other side of this pendulum is the fact that many think they have earned salvation through their good deeds. They think, no way am I a bad person because I'm not as bad as that guy. And don't point at anyone that you know you're not as bad as. But if you're comparing yourself to John the Baptist or you're comparing yourself to Hitler, it doesn't make any spiritual sense because my God does not grade on a curve. Because if he did, he'd grade against Jesus. So good luck with that. But as we've, as a church, been studying the book of Ephesians for many months back in the day, and now we're studying the book of John, we're reminded that no one is good, not even one, without God intervening. And if God intervenes, it means that his work and his will will be done through his people who have trusted, who have by faith made Jesus the Lord of their lives. And if God intervenes, man, that means that there is a point of our work and our deeds and what we do. So it's really easy, almost too easy, to start to justify ourselves based on what we do or what event that we've put on in the past or by an attendance in a worship church service or by our effectiveness with people or the money that we raise for a good cause or the way we think that we have the right theology or understanding of God or the proper way of worship that we think, and we'll never say this out loud, but we think and we even act sometimes like God is lucky to have us. <sighs> to have us as servants. Which really is just a sad attempt at making God our slave, isn't it? As if he owes us anything but death. Hmm. So is this pendulum swing that mankind has been overcorrecting for ever since religion was started, and it is why there are so many that are religious rather than people that have a proper relationship with Jesus Christ, because we'd rather not owe him our lives, but work our way to him, because then we can control it. If I had a rope, and you picture a rope, if, you, if I'm holding the rope and I'm not pulling it, if there's no tension, it's just limp, it's pretty useless. But if I pull it as hard as I can, and it snaps, it's kind of useless too. There's something about the tension with a rope. And that seems to be where Jesus is as we study Scripture. He seems to be in the tension constantly. I want to be in the tension with Jesus. See, there are some black and white things. Did Jesus live a sinless, perfect life? You better believe it. Did he physically die on a cross for mankind's sin? Absolutely. Did he physically rise from the grave, defeating death and the hold that sin had on people? I bet my life on that. But then there are other things that aren't as black and white. 
We have opinions and interpretations, but we do not have to agree in order to have fellowship with one another in secondary things. In fact, if you want to know if you love God, you can tell through how you love someone who doesn't agree with you on all the secondary issues. That's what we've been studying. So turn with me to John chapter 4, which Karen read, verse 27. And Jesus has finished this discussion. He's been talking with this, this woman at the well who was tore up, and, and a lot of the people in the culture thought she was immoral, and no one should talk to her, and yet Jesus came and he talked to her. And he built a relationship with her, and he had a discussion with her. And we're going to see the aftermath of that discussion right now. Verse 27. Just then, his, Jesus, Jesus' disciples returned, because they had gone to eat, go get food, and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Just then. There's these little kind of things in Scripture that get me pretty excited. Just then, it seems to hint that God's completely in control even when the disciples would show up. Because we all know that if the disciples showed up or he, they were with Jesus as Jesus was having this conversation with this woman, they would have messed it up, wouldn't they? They would have been like, hey, she's a sinner. And there would have never been the transaction and the, com- the conversation that took place between Jesus and the woman at the well. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. She left her water jar. For those of you that have been here, maybe you've read this passage before, what did she come to the well for? Water. But I have a question for you as we see her response to having this conversation with Jesus. Have you ever been so distracted by God that you forgot what you were doing? I know for me, I get more distracted with my to-do list or social media or fires being put out that I have to be involved in rather than the glory and the grace and the power of the God who forgave me of my sins, not because I did anything, but because God is gracious. But she forgoes the need that she came to the well for. There's something powerful there. Because she was offered living water from the Messiah. And that supersedes any physical need that she or you or I have. Jesus didn't come to make us wealthy, healthy, and happy. He came to make us right with God. And when people start to teach a prosperity of, oh, God will never give you anything you can't handle. No, no, no. God will never give you anything he can't handle. Thanks, Mike. That was a good one. When we start to pretend or think that God is going to give us things that are just going to make us happier, we miss the point that true joy is found in knowing our Creator through Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished. And the Samaritan woman had come in contact with the Messiah and, he, and poses the question to others, could this be the Messiah because He told me everything about me? And I want to ask you the same thing. Could this be the Messiah? Could this man be the Christ? Could he be the one that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, especially the first five books of the Old Testament, speaks of? Is he the one that the world had been yearning and awaiting? Could the Word, 
really become flesh and live among us. Everything we do on a Sunday, you get invited here, you come here through your own will. Everything we do on a Sunday is to persuade you towards worshiping Jesus as the Christ. Everything we do during the week is to prepare and equip us as image bearers of Jesus because the point is being known by God and knowing God personally. To worship him, as we studied last week, and to worship him in spirit and in truth. In fact, there's this interesting conversation or, yeah, conversation that takes place as Jesus is coming to do what he came to do. He's about to go to the cross, but if you haven't read ahead, you don't know that. But in Luke chapter 19, Jesus has come into the town, and all of these people, especially his disciples that had seen him perform miracles, were awaiting him. They were excited for him. And it says this in Luke 19, verse 37, it says, When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, they missed it, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus responds, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. See, we were created to worship. We all worship something, don't we? There we go. We all worship something. And because we all worship something, God put that in us. He gave us this want to worship, but he is the only one that deserves our true worship with our lives. God is ferocious when it comes to gathering worshipers because he is worthy of praise. And if his people don't praise him, his creation will cry out, and I don't want a rock praising God instead of me. Verse 31 of John 4. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, which means teacher, eat something. Up until this point, Jesus had probably gone quite some time without food. He had sent the disciples into Samaria to go get food and not get in the way of the conversation that Jesus was going to have with the Samaritan woman. And the well from where they were was probably about a 20-mile walk. That's far. And they didn't stop for food. So Jesus may have gone hours without food and put a lot of energy into this trek to the well as they walked through Samaria And his disciples knew this. They knew that he was hungry, so they urged him to eat. So I have a question for you. Can Jesus get hangry? If you don't know what hangry is, it's when you're really hungry and you start to get angry. You start to hulk out, right? That's usually me at 1236, just so you guys know. But I don't think Jesus got hangry. Because I see that his response is that his physical needs are never more important than the eternal need. Verse 32, Jesus replies, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Okay, one of my favorite things about Jesus is he isn't clear all the time. And some of my favorite things about Jesus is he's clear some of the time. And here he's talking about something and they're having two different conversations. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And so the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him like the go-go squishy stuff? Jesus is constantly speaking about the eternal while his disciples were assuming the physical, which we see throughout the scriptures. 
Verse 34 in this verse, all oh, this verse. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. This, for me, may be one of the most important sayings that Jesus had anywhere. Because he points out the fact that the will of, of the Father is more important than physical well-being. His priority is not to be wealthy, healthy, and happy, but to be obedient to the Father's will, which you and I do not do well. But empowered by the Holy Spirit, if we've trusted Jesus with our lives, we have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of God who created you, loves you, sustains you, and redeems you, and transforms you to look more like Jesus each day that we put into action his very if, if this is your first time, I, I'm going to share this with you. This is going to, most people know this. We focus on spiritual growth at Church of the Valley. That's what we focus on. That's what we talk about. That's what we celebrate. Another way of spirit, saying spiritual growth is sanctification. Another way of saying it that doesn't sound so theological is to look more like Jesus. But the thing is, you can't will yourself to look more like Jesus. You can't do it yourself. It is in cooperation between applying God's word and the Holy Spirit convicting you. But then God uses this conduit, if you will, in order to help us grow, to help us understand what it means to look more like Jesus. And you know what the conduit is? Discipleship. And if, if you're not a church person, discipleship for a lot of people looks a lot like mentorship. If you've ever been in a job where you have someone that's a little ahead of you and you start to learn from them, but it's, it's a lot more than that. It's not just mentorship. It's about laying down your life, giving up your life, and saying, Jesus, whatever you say, I'll do. And guess what? You won't. You won't. You want to when you're in him, but you won't always do it perfectly. But discipleship is to equip disciplined pupils in relationship with Jesus Christ. So I gave you a definition. To equip, this is discipleship, to equip disciplined pupils, people that are willing to be disciplined and follow Jesus as their teacher and their Lord in relationship with him. This was a command, this was a commission, and this was the conduit in which people grow to look more like Jesus. And my fear is that I'm going to say that and you're not going to hear it because you're going to just think, well, I'll just read more. I get people that come to me all the time. I read through the Bible 77 times. Good for you, dude. You don't need the Holy Spirit to do that. Well, I, I've been to this many Bible studies. Fantastic. How much have you applied to your life? I think we divorce evangelism, which is kind of, for some of you, evangelism is like the idea of the guy on the street corner, unfortunately, who's got the sign, and I just want to shoot him with a paintball gun, just saying. But we divorce evangelism, proclaiming the truth of Jesus, telling people the gospel. We divorce evangelism and discipleship to equip people to be in relationship with Jesus. And we do it because we want to make it so Christians don't have to do as much. Because we think I'm saved by grace, so works just aren't that important. But what you do in the faith your works are the evidence that you received grace. Because if you do nothing, if you sit on your hands, if, you don't, if all you want to do is stuff that doesn't require the Holy Spirit, and you're just going to come to church, and you're going to listen, you're going to be like, well, he made me laugh once. It's, it's not about what you say. 
Talk is cheap. We all know that, right? It's about how God has transformed you to do his will as you apply the word of God to your lives. So he says, my food is to do the will of the Father. So real talk right now, all right? Do you want to grow? Not wide, but do you want to grow more into the likeness of Jesus? Here's here's the secret sauce. You ready? Put into practice the words and commands of God after you receive him. That's how you grow. Put into practice the words and the commands of God. This is a theme throughout Scripture. This is something that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes what what Moses writes down in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, God says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You know where that's found? In here. There's a need that you and I have, church. The same need that Jesus shared with the Samaritan woman about living water. But here we understand that the very words of God is where we find our sustenance. The older I get, the more I love God's word. Anyone? Actually, no, no, scratch that. The more mature I get, the more I love God's word. See, it's not about age, it's about miles. And I want to understand more of it. I want to read it more often. I want to do the will of God through his directives to me, through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus was tempted, many of you know this, even if you're not a church person, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, he, was, he hadn't eaten or drank anything for 40 days, and it said he was hungry, and my response would have been, duh, right? And he's in the desert. What does Jesus do when Satan tries to tempt him? Does he take a survey? Did he look for popular opinion? Did he see if the majority of people agreed with Satan? No. He quoted the very words of God, his own words written down through Moses. He says in Matthew 4, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Christian, you know what the will of God is for you? To obey. To do what he says. To put into practice his very words. Thinking biblically, you, some of you have heard me teach on this before, thinking biblically to, to not just quote verses at someone like Satan, but to think biblically in such a way that when a situation comes up, you can go, what does the scripture say in the context in which it says it? What can we learn and glean from what God actually said to his creation? I want us to think biblically as a community, but not so much that the pendulum swings too far the other way where we all start to worship the book rather than the author and the hero of the book. Let me, let me say something that some of you may want to fight me on, right? Worshiping the Bible is idolatry. Let me say it another way. Worshiping anything other than God revealed in the scriptures is idolatry. But how can that be? Didn't the word become flesh and dwell among us? Aren't these the very words of God? Yes. 
But if you look at memorizing these or just trying to quote these at people as your justification, you've missed it. Because this is the explanation of how you can be in right relationship with the God who wrote a love letter so you could know him. And so many of us make a good thing into a God thing, and it's idolatry. So you and I have to be careful because there are these tensions There are all these things that we could be doing that are good, but we could totally miss God. In John chapter 6, we'll get there probably in two years. In John chapter 6, it says this in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying this about his Father. And this is the will of him, the Father, who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone that looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus leave the comforts of heaven the right hand of the Father, to come and clothe himself with skin and live and walk among us. Why? To do the will of his Father. See, we all get that Jesus didn't do anything wrong, but do you realize that Jesus did everything right? I didn't do everything right since I got here. And so the will of his Father was the point It was to create an opportunity for his creation to have eternal life, to have a relationship with him. And it is his finished work through the perfect life lived, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection that makes it so you and I can be part, check it, of his unfinished work. Wait, what? There's finished work. Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, died the death you should have died, rose from the dead. But then there's the unfinished work. Spoiler alert, it's to make disciples. It's to help people grow into the likeness of Jesus while making disciples of Jesus in the kingdom of God. That's the unfinished work. And we, you and me, if we've trusted Christ, get to be a part of it. And doing what the Lord says, doing what the Lord wills, doing what the Lord wants is more beautiful and powerful than trying to do what you want to do at all times. He was and is and will always be the Alpha and Omega. And if he is who he says that he is, then as a child of God's, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you have the opportunity to follow and obey and to grow and to look and to be more like Jesus. There shouldn't be an attitude of thankfulness for the believer. There is an attitude of thankfulness when we are included in Christ. Do you see the difference? Some of us are, oh, I wish I was thankful. I'll just pray more to be thankful. Here's the thing. If you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, you are thankful. You just are. John Calvin was a theologian who wrote many books, and he was writing on the passage that we're studying, and he was talking about the purpose of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? And he said it this way, it was to advance the kingdom of God, to restore to life lost souls, to spread the light of the gospel, and in short, to bring salvation to the world. The excellence of these things caused him, when fatigued and hungry, to forget meat and drink, yet we derive from this no ordinary consolation when we learn that Christ was so 
anxious about the salvation of men, that it gave him the highest delight to procure it. For we cannot doubt that he is now actuated by similar feelings towards us. Jesus didn't come to make you wealthy, healthy, and happy. He came to make it so you could have a relationship with God that lasts for eternity. Let me, let me ask this question. Um, do you understand that Jesus is closer to coming back today than he's ever been in history? You guys get that? Okay, good. And because he's coming back and he's going to judge the earth, it's just a reality, our job is not to get others to clean themselves up, okay? Isn't that become what most of our evangelism is? Well, you better just stop doing these bad things. It's not to clean others up or to even look busy, but to make known that the kingdom of God is at hand and the harvest is ripe and it is ready. I don't want you to answer this question. It's rhetorical. But how many of you have led anyone to Christ? Don't answer it. But if I asked that question and I made you publicly announce if you think that you led someone to Christ, wouldn't that kind of either puff you up or make you feel like you're not good enough? And the thing is that you and I, we get to be on the great commission with Jesus. We don't save people. We are a conduit of grace. We are a conduit of God's word. We get to share with others in a way that people can understand. So even though I had the great honor and blessing of being a part of Kevin Cheng's faith story and Malik's faith story, you know what? I didn't lead them to Christ. God drew them to himself. But I remember there was a time when I wanted to make it about me. And I probably still do that. I just don't see it because I have blind spots. But there was a time where I wanted credit I wanted a gold star next to my name in the book of life. And I wanted people to praise me for what I've done. And I would box out people. No, I get to baptize this person. You know what's different? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. So let me give you the term that I don't have a tattoo yet, but when I get one, it's this in Greek. You ready? Disciples, disciple. This noun, verbs. You picking up what I'm putting down? Disciples, disciple. Disciple is a noun. It is a verb, and it is what God makes through those who put into action his will and his word. And I don't want our evangelism, our proclamation of Jesus. If you're on the street corner, I'm tackling you, all right? Just telling you. I don't want our evangelism to just become a checklist of have-tos rather than a lifestyle of investment of time, treasure, and talent into other people for the glory of God's name. John 4, verse 35. Jesus says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Many commentators believe that when this was happening, Jesus, it was probably January, maybe December, and, and the, the harvest was being ripened. And he was explaining that in, say, probably mid-April, there will be a lot of fruit that has come from the harvest. It will be very ripe, so be prepared and get ready. But when it's ripe, 
you want to gather as much fruit as possible. You want to be ready with buckets and things to pick it up. Church, there are people around you that are ripe in the harvest. They are ready. They are willing. They are able. But they are not invited to know Christ. My favorite question to anyone is, what's stopping you from following Jesus? It's my favorite question. And you know what that usually creates? An opportunity for someone to follow Jesus. But they don't know what they don't know. And unless they are invited to know and grow in Jesus, how do we expect them to do such a thing? The biggest aha moment for me was while I was working at a former church, Karen Miller, who read the scripture, Karen Miller and I were working together, and we were actually preparing this church to, to really buy into discipleship, to really buy into ways to disciple. We were training and equipping to be disciple makers. And as we were talking, as we were doing stuff on whiteboards, and as we were teaching people how to invest in other people, I realized that for the average person in the Christian church context was that most of them had just heard not saying this was said, but I'm saying this is what they heard. Just believe. Just believe. Just believe into the name of Jesus. Just believe he existed. Just believe he died on a cross. Just believe that he rose. And if you believe these things, your life will get better. And if you believe these things, you will magically be saved at the end of your life from H-E double hockey sticks. And because I think of this incomplete view of the Christian gospel presentation. We have countless people in and around churches singing songs, hymns, and praises to God every single week lying through their teeth because they have not encountered Jesus Christ as Lord. Because they did what any demon could do. To believe that something took place rather than to repent because the gospel is true. To repent is not to just say that you're sorry and then to go on as business as usual, but to mentally, spiritually, and physically change direction. That's what repentance looks like. To stop following your ways, but to follow Jesus' ways, words, and example as the Lord of your life. That's what repentance looks like. I've said this before, but it's not a makeover, it's a takeover. And our evangelism and our discipleship and our sharing with others and our investing our lives in other people cannot be one that only expects intellectual acceptance without spiritual repentance. In the Bay Area today, we have a real repentance problem. We really think we are Lord. We think and we show that we follow money or the American dream, or personal comfort, rather than a crucified and resurrected king. Don't miss this. Repentance is the green light to our salvation and sanctification. And my fear is that too many of us think that baptism is all we need to do. That if we just get baptized in front of other people, then we'll magically change. No, no, no. There's no magic involved. When you turn and you want to turn because the Lord drew you to himself, things change. But you have to repent. Verse 36. 
He continues, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower who spreads the seed and the reaper may be glad together. There is a reward in heaven. There is a reward on earth for doing the things that God would have you do, but it's not a tangible comfort. It is a shared joy in the work that the Lord decides to do through you and your, check it, faithfulness. That's God's economy. Faithfulness. I used to have some pretty whack mansion theology. Anybody? Anyone? Not just me? Okay. You still do? All right. Well, um, just kidding. The idea of mansion theology is essentially that all the good stuff that you do here, you're just building up this amazing house in heaven, and that house is going to be awesome, and the rent will never increase, and your toilet will always work, and it's going to be amazing. So you do stuff here in this life. You do get rewarded in heaven. What the scriptures say is that you get jewels in your crown because you're co-heirs with Christ, but guess what you do with that crown? You lay it at the feet of Jesus because he did for you what you could not do for yourself. And One of the things that I think we miss is that we give away grace because we've received grace. That's the positive way of saying it. Let me say it the negative way. If we can't give away grace, it's probably because we haven't received grace. So why do we do what we do? If everything's already been done for us, no working our way to get saved, no having to work to stay saved, why do anything? Because we are adopted. We are sons and daughters of God, so we don't have to earn. We share in the blessing of doing the work that our Heavenly Father has set out for us to do. If you get nothing else, get this. We do not work to be saved by the King but because we are saved by the king, we work for him. We do not work to be saved by the king, but because we are saved, we work for the king. Don't miss that. Verse 37, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. This was a common proverb in the time. Many people knew this statement But the biggest difference between the world and the kingdom of God is that when someone reaps or when someone is brought unto salvation, we do not, as followers of Christ, make it about us. I did. I totally did. And I love that God uses me. I love that God will use you and has used you. I love that you and I get to be links in a chain as God draws people and pulls people to himself. But it's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. Verse 38, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their reward. The Word of God is here in your hands, in your laps, on your phone, in the backseat of your car, because people were willing to lay down their lives so you could have this. People were willing to lay down their lives so you wouldn't just read this, but you'd actually put it into practice. If you have a relationship with God, here's what I can guarantee you. Someone prayed for you at some point. Someone prayed without ceasing. And you may never know who they are this side of eternity. Money was given to missionaries so these missionaries could go into some context which eventually affected some part of your salvation story. Because the gospel was spread and it affected you in some way. 
God does supernatural things that maybe we don't even see on this side of eternity, but I don't want you to hear this in a spiritually deaf way. Our works matter, but we don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved if we've trusted Jesus Christ. There was a man who prayed for me for probably 15 years. He was a devout Christian, loves the Lord. I've shared about him before. He's the guy that I always say was too Christian. Okay, any of you still have answering machines? Raise your hand. Be honest. Okay, not voicemail, answering machines. All right, praise God for you. All right. My, this gentleman I'm talking about, what he would do is when you would call, you would get his answering machine, and it would start with Psalm 139, and he'd read the whole dang thing. Leave a message, beep, right? And so I would call him too Christian. And this man prayed for me for 15 years until I came to know the Lord. He still prays for me, but he prayed that I would come to know Jesus. And he was too Christian. He would talk with me about Jesus, but I never really asked him. And God used other means. He used a passionate Portuguese preacher to preach the gospel and and make fun of the Red Sox to get me to come to faith. This man prayed for me for years, and just the other day, we, we just got back from our vacation. I'm driving to this really great Mexican place to go pick up food that has nothing to do with the story, and it was so good. I'm hungry again. Bread of life and tortilla of life. Anyway, we, uh, we, I go and I pick up the food, and I call this man just to check in to see how he's doing, and he's depressed. And he shared that with me, and he told me how depressed he was, and he told me how he's asked God to take this from him multiple times, but after months and months of just being depressed, he doesn't feel like he can handle it. And the truth is, he can't. But God can. And he says, I've tried to give it to him, and I've tried to do this, and and the last thing I'm ever going to tell him is, well, you just don't have enough faith, because that's stupid. But I asked him, is there anything that you need to repent from? Is there anything you need to change direction from? About a year ago, we were sitting down having lunch, and I was sharing with him that the church seems to not have a belief problem. It has a repentance problem. And I think ever since I said that, it's, he's been wrestling with it. And if this man that can faithfully pray for me for 15 years before I knew Christ can struggle with not being willing to repent, how about you? There are things that you're unwilling to repent from. I'm not talking about go to a priest and confess your sins. I'm talking about is there something that stands between you and God that you're unwilling to lay down and say, God, you know what? This is yours. Take it. I'm sorry, and I'm not going to do business as usual. Church, I want us to grow. I want us to know Jesus. I want us to look more like him, but it starts with the green light of salvation, which is to repent. So worship team, come on up. Mike, come on up. We're going to do communion. And communion is for those of us who have trusted Jesus. It doesn't matter if you attend this church every week or this is the first time you're here. If you've trusted Jesus, we have an open table. Come partake. But the thing I would ask you first and foremost is where's your heart? Is your heart right before God? Prepare yourself. Check yourself. We're going to take of the offering. 
which means when you come up, if you're going to drop off communion, or if you're going to grab communion, you can drop off your offering in these two little receptacles. You can drop off a card if you want to communicate with us in some way. You can also drop off your offering in the back in a box as you walk out as well, but you can also bring it up here if you'd like to. But I don't want you to think that any of that justifies you. The thing that justifies you is Jesus' work on the cross and through the resurrection, and our response gets to be one not just of belief, but of repentance. So would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads? And before we partake in communion, I just want to pray for us as a community. God, I ask that your word would land on hearts that were prepared to receive it today. I pray that we would be a people that put into action the things that, Holy Spirit, you convict us of. I pray that we wouldn't take our Christian life lightly because we're examples that other people watch. And God, if we're far from you, Lord, would we be reminded that no matter how far we run from you, as soon as we turn around, you're right there to meet us. So God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.